Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Alan Jacobs. He teaches in the Honors Program at Baylor University. His many books include The Pleasures of Reading in an Age of Distraction and The Narnia, The Life and Imagination of C.S. Lewis, and most recently, How to Think, A Survival Guide for a World at Odds. He's written for a range of publications, from Harper's to First Things, from the Christian Century to the Wall Street Journal. We had a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you Alan Jacobs. Alan, welcome to the podcast. You have written a book called How to Think, A Survival Guide for a World at Odds. Can I ask you to do something which you ask people to do, your readers, regularly? Can you give me your repugnancies? Just lay out a few of them for me. Oh, boy, man. Wouldn't you know you'd start with like the, the most revealing, uh, you know, well, it will be revealing if I answer the question. You know, I'm, I'm trying to think of a way to dodge it right now. Um, I guess I, I, I think most of my repugnancies are uh, involve zealots. Um, that is people of any persuasion, whether they're my brothers and sisters in Christ or whether they are atheists or whatever they happen to be, um, who are just always just headed in a straight line for whatever it is that they absolutely believe must be right. And they can't be deviated from it and they can't slow down to talk about it. And they just, um, they know exactly what's right in every case. And, um, those are the people that I really, really struggle to deal with. Um, and I have to try, um, all kinds of spiritual disciplines <laughs> in order to, um, be charitable and kind and patient, uh, because what, what I have to remind myself is that sometimes they have virtues that I don't have. For instance, commitments to justice, commitments to the, to what's right. Um, and uh, their energy gets things done. But, um, my, my sort of instinctive reaction is always to back away from people who are zealots of any kind. Who was the last zealot that, like, you were like, oh gosh, this person is driving me up a wall? Yeah, it wouldn't be it. It, it wouldn't be appropriate for me to say that, but let me just. <laughs> But but I will say this is, is it pretty much every time I check Twitter I see one you know uh, and and it can be again from from all across the spectrum right it's the people for whom you know the the answers are always obvious and why don't we just go straight to these answers Yeah, it's really interesting. Before about an hour ago, before you know we were talking, I was listening to Howard Stern and he had Sarah Silverman on and she was just saying to him that why don't you you know, go after Trump more. And why don't you, you know, like Jimmy Kimmel does it and these guys, you know, Colbert, but they, you have a bipartisan audience unlike them. And he's like, look, I, I, and she just wouldn't like let it go. And she's like, look, I, I don't agree with Donald politically. I told him he shouldn't run for president because I think he, he won't like the lifestyle. I, I've said when I, what do you want? I, <laughs> it, was, it was just fascinating because like you could hear just Stern's kind of visible irritation at like, what, what do you want from me? I speak my mind, but I'm not, like, don't politicize me. And and that's part of what you're getting at the book, right? Every square inch of public life seems to be, like, politicized or tribalized in, in a way that makes it hard to, like, think and relate like a, like a decent human being. Yeah, well, I mean, and I think that's one of the things that gets lost when, uh, when, when, we, when you do become a zealot. And it's kind of clear to you what needs to, what battles need to be fought at every single point. And until we, you know, we win this battle, then there's no time to think about anything else. When, when you get in a situation when you, uh, like that, uh, then what, what happens, I think, is that you, you almost inevitably lose this sense of common humanity, right? That other people are not people who don't agree with you. They're not human beings. They're impediments to your cause. They're just like, they're blocking the path. You know, they're, they're obstacles. And so there are other people, people who don't see things the way that you do, people who don't have exactly the same politics that don't line up, you know, step by step by step with your politics. Those people then become less like people than like things. They're, they're, they're objects and you just got to shove them out of the way or blow them up or do whatever you have to do to get rid of them. And there's just no possibility of thinking there. And that's the deal, right? That, that this thinking together, thinking along with other people, thinking in relation to other people, 
presumes that they are other people and they're not just objects. Yeah. So did you grow up? I mean, you, you, you wrote an article a couple years ago, right? About the watchers, like public intellectuals. Right. Did you grow up in a pretty intellectual home? I mean, were a lot of books, was there a lot of dinner tables sort of pub, you know, intellectual conversation or is that like a later development for you? Well, yes and no. I mean, I grew up, um, uh, nobody in my family had more than a high school education. To this day, nobody in my family has more than a than a high school education except for me. And you know, we were you know we were a bunch of Alabama rednecks. But my, everybody in my family did read. Um, they read mainly. Um, you know, my dad read westerns and and science fiction books, and my mom read romances, and my grandmother read mysteries. But that was kind of the thing we did as a family was read. Um, and, and so like a typical, a typical evening in our household would be like the three people sitting in the room with the TV on, like blaring at top volume, but <laughs> nobody, nobody watching the TV, everybody's reading books. Uh, my dad had this thing. He hated turning the television off, hated it. So like when we would like go on vacation, he would leave the TV on. <laughs> he would, and so it would be on when we got back, you know, but he, but, but he never watched anything. He just kind of had to have it on for background noise. And, uh, so there was always reading going on, but, but nobody ever talked about what they read or anything like that. It was just kind of a private activity in our household. It's interesting because you talk about how basically being an academic doesn't necessarily lead one to be a better thinker because of tribalisms and reductionisms. And I says, do you, do you, is someone who it comes from a home without a lot of formal education, is that a different experience being in the academy than your colleagues who come from homes that are more formally educated, who have more of an academic legacy? Like, do you notice a difference? Yeah, no, I mean, I notice it all the time. It's something I've been aware of since, since I really, since I started grad school, um, that, uh, you know, almost everybody that I deal with in my day-to-day life in the academy is a person whose parents had expectations for them to be uh, professionally successful. And in most cases, it was also uh, uh, intellectually, academically successful as well. They were people who, for whom this was just the norm. Um, and that, and that, that, that's, it's not universally true, but boy, is it overwhelmingly likely to be true. And I think what that, what that does is, it's always made me feel since the first day I started uh, down an academic path that I was somewhat of an outsider to this community. But then on the other hand, because I do have a lot of academic interests, you know, it's often that, especially early on when I was a, when I was a young Christian and I was beginning to go to church for the first time, you know, there was a lot of suspicion and concern about, you know, academic pursuits and whether they would take you away from the true gospel. So I'm kind of used to being between those two worlds. And that's one of the things that really, uh, well, probably the most formative experience of mine that shaped the writing of this book is this sense of always having to go back and forth between two communities um, that are mutually mistrustful. Um, and in neither of which have I ever felt completely at home. So in some sense, like your sense of outsiderness is like fruitful for your, for your work. Well, you know, here's the thing, right? You can make it, if you have that kind of experience, you, you can, you can let it poison you. You can let it, um, create a sense of resentment or frustration, or you can make it work for you. And I, I just, I feel like, um, you know, especially as a Christian, I have to ask what, what is there in this experience that could potentially be a blessing for me or for others? Um, I just feel like that's how you have to approach it. And so I've tried to do that. And I think overall, it's, you know, it's worked out re- reasonably well. So, Do you hang out with people? Uh, do you spend a lot of time with non-academic types, like socially? No, it's it's hard to do when you're in the academic world. You know, you're just you you find yourself sort of circling around a lot uh, with 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 other academics. Uh, but but my wife is not an academic, and so she is someone who's always reminding me, hey, you know, there are other people out here. There's another world out here. Let's go. Let's go see what what they're like. You know, and so like you know, she's she's introduced me to to a neighbor of ours who is um and who is Israeli. Uh, it's a woman who came from, who was born in Croatia, raised in Israel, you know, lived on a kibbutz, uh, eventually married an engineer and came to the U.S. 
Um, and so here, here's this, here's this Israeli Jew who's living in Waco, Texas. You know, she's, she's anything but an academic, but man, does she have a world of experience and, um, a whole different life than the one that, um, uh, than the ones that my fellow academics lead. So it's kind of been great. My wife will always, you know, she'll drag me out and uh, remind me of a whole world outside the academy. When when you write in the public eye, is it, is there, you know, Thomas Merton talks about this danger of of, of seeing yourself versus being yourself. Yeah. I mean, you talk about some of the conflicts writing this Harper's piece, right? In the book, right. you talk about like uh, the temptation between wanting to please the audience and and yet also wanting to, to speak your own, you know, from your own heart, your own convictions. Yeah. Is that, is that like the cha- a challenge of sort of being someone who's doing public intellectual work that you're, that you're kind of, that, that you're not being the Alan Jacobs that people read, like you're, like, you're conjuring up like a, a caricature of yourself. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a, uh, so two things about that. W- one is that when you, when you do uh, have a history of operating in in different communities, you're you're always tempted to kind of uh, shape or, or conform your behavior uh, to the norms of one of those communities. And it's in, it's impossible not to do that, right? I mean, it's impossible when you're around Christians all the time not to talk more Christiany, and it's impossible when you're around academics all the time not to you know fall into academic ease, and uh, and and you you do and in one sense that's natural, right? I mean, it's just you're adapting yourself to your circumstances, and that's good. But if those communities are really, really separate from one another, then that becomes a kind of a, uh, you know, you're stretching yourself and you start to feel like you're faking it. You know, like I'm, I'm faking it both all the time. <laughs> I'm just faking it in different ways, but, you know, but I'm, but I'm always faking it. And so again, um, you know, the fact that I, uh, that I, I try to be aware of that rather than pretend that it doesn't happen. And, and, um, in writing about thinking, and this is kind of the way I, I write about everything. I, I can't stand the person who writes. This is here's another one of my repugnancies. It's the the per, <laughs> the person who is speaking from high to low. You know, I'm up here on the mountaintop, and I have the wisdom, and I have the experience, and I have the insight. And now I'm speaking, you know, to those of you below me who don't know what I know. And so it was really important for me in this book to present myself as someone who struggles, uh, someone whose who's thinking is often um, limited or maybe in some ways deformed by my desire to belong. I don't, I don't experience that less than anybody else, but I try to be aware of it and hope that by being aware of it, I can head off some of the worst effects of it. Yeah, and you talk about um, Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, yeah. and, and basically how even though we can't get rid of sort of type one thinking, mm-hmm. right? But, but we can try to be aware of it, like that, that yeah. we need it. Um, and you, and, and you kind of argue that you're, you, you want to be a little less, I uh, kind of maybe cynical about the type two stuff. I mean, yeah. cause you could read Kahneman's work. It's just kind of basically, I'm making errors all the time. Right. You know, right. I don't get better. Right. I don't like, you know, yeah. um, but you, you think maybe there's more hope than that. Yeah, I do. And in fact, I, I think, First of all, I mean, I think the fact that that Kahneman says, "Hey, I'm not, I, I, I don't think as well as as I wish I did," just that in itself is already a little victory. You know, there's there one of the things he talks about in that book is a phenomenon that they call priming effects. That is, that you can um, create an environment that will subtly point point people towards thinking in certain ways. And then when you test them, they respond in accordance with the way that they've been primed. So, so Kahneman and, and, and uh, Amos Tversky, who he worked with, they did a lot of research on priming effects. And in Thinking Fast and Slow, he talks about how important priming effects are. And some other social scientists have, have looked at the research on priming effects, and they've said, you know something, there's really not much here. It's not very good research. And it does, the priming effects are not nearly as strong as Kahneman thinks. And so one of these guys posted his research on, on his blog and, and Kahneman chimed, he came in the comments, he showed up in the comments and he said, you're absolutely right. He said, I, I really wanted the priming effects to be true. I, uh, you know, I, I look back at it now and I see that, uh, I, I read that evidence, you know, in light of what I wanted to see rather than what was really there, my bad. 
And I thought, well, I mean, first of all, okay, so you made a mistake, but what an incredible example you're setting for other researchers. Here's this Nobel Prize winner who's up there saying, oh, yeah, I blew it. I blew it because I saw what I wanted to see. And that's got to be helpful to other people, right? It's got to make a difference. Yeah. Have you read Michael Lewis's book about their friendship? No, I haven't. I, I, well, I read an excerpt from it, I guess, that was uh, online somewhere. Yeah, I just find that Chersky and Kahneman's friendship so moving i mean it, it, this uh, you know that they, he describes that you know how they first yeah meet and they, they're just these two like dyna dynamos on this campus yeah. and they just stay in a room together and they and you know it's just a very moving because you talk about the importance of empathy right. and and social goods in your book and i, I think of like what a what a rich picture of friendship and they had a, a fall yeah which was really you know, sad it was really yeah. yeah and then kind of a reconnection yeah um, yeah which is, is I, I, you know, Kahneman and Tversky are like Lennon and McCartney. You know, I mean, it's like they do they can do terrific things individually, but it's nothing compared to what they can do uh, collectively. And I think that that, you know, that collaborative, um, you know, uh, when those kind of collaborations work, they work because somebody is willing to call somebody else on their nonsense and the other person is willing to hear it, you know. So. Yeah, so, so Kahneman, you know, Tversky was the one who would kind of run off with some, you know, fantastic idea, and Kahneman would be the one who would say, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, let's pull this back a little bit, you know. And, and similarly, you know, when, with, with Lennon and McCartney, you know, when, when, um, like when they're, um, uh, when they were, when Paul McCartney was writing, uh, it's getting better, you know, it's getting better all the time. It's John who steps in and writes the little, little line it couldn't get much worse you know so so yeah yeah okay paul yeah getting better all the time right well that's because it couldn't get much worse and and the songs are a lot better when they you know when they sort of dialogue with one another musically and lyrically but that requires it requires something on both sides it requires a kind of an honesty um straightforwardness on the one side and then a humility a willingness to hear on the other side Uh, and if you don't have both of those you don't get the I, what I following Martha Nussbaum I call relational goods. You don't get the relational goods in thinking unless you got both of those things. Yeah, one of the things in the relational goods section early in the book that I love you talk about that Malcolm Gladwell podcast, Wilt Chamberlain. I love that episode <laughs> yeah. where like Wilt Chamberlain's only like flaw is that he just sucks as a free throw shooter, and finally he starts shooting underhanded and he just can't do it. Right. You know, he can't keep doing it. It goes back to his terrible style. Yeah. And that insight you had about, well, of course, if the guy's goal in life was to sleep with as many women as he could, that how could he risk looking silly? Yeah. And I'd never heard that connection made before. Yeah. Well, this is the, it's the, 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 the problem with, um, the kind of the Gladwell pop social science approach to a lot of these questions is that it does sort of assume that uh, a, a kind of a version of rational choice theory, you know, that people are rational and they want to maximize the positive effects. And, but, but, but it just looks at and one Gladwell thing. And gets infuriated at yeah. irrationality. I mean, and you no, hear that's it, right. right. That's right. But the thing about it is, is I, as you know, I, I, you know, I'm not sure it's irrational. So, so what, what Gladwell thinks is that, well, obviously the rational thing to do is to maximize your free throw shooting. I said, sure it is. If what you care about more than anything in the world is free throw shooting, <laughs> But maybe maybe there are other things you care about, like you don't want to look silly. You want to look like, you know, a bad dude up there and you want to really, you know, you're afraid. I can easily imagine somebody like Will Chamberlain being afraid of having somebody make fun of him for shooting granny style free throws. And he, you know, why shouldn't he care about that? Right. Because, you know, as as I said in the book, when he was shooting free throws better, he was the most dominant offensive force in the history of basketball. And when he was shooting free throws worse, he was still the most dominant offensive force in the history of basketball. He didn't give up that much, you know. And, uh, you know, for Gladwell, that's irrational. For me, it's a very human sort of trade-off. You, you, you accept that you're going to do a little less well in this thing over here because you're really focused on this other thing over here. You also mentioned Invisibilia, the podcast. Because mm-hmm. um, you talk about one of the characters they had who doesn't has that disorder where they don't have fear. Yeah. Do you, do you notice a difference between those two podcasts, Invisibilia and Revisionist History? I Well, I li- I've listened to, I think, almost every episode of Invisibilia, but I've only listened to a couple of episodes of Gladwell. I'll be honest that, you know, uh, Gladwell's podcast um, personality kind of wears thin 
from me for a while. What do you have something in mind? Do they do they seem really different? I mean, it's one seems descriptively based and one seems prescriptively mm. based. So invisibilia sort of describes the world to you, yeah. And you and you feel like you're discovering it with them. It's it's very it's not heavy handed. Whereas and Malcolm Gladwell makes some interesting podcasts, yeah. but but it is. I know who the heroes and villains are in the first right. few minutes. Right. Like it's not really, it's like there's white hats and black hats and it's, yeah. just, and it's creative. Yeah. I mean, like he, he does, he tells some creative stories, but, right. but, but they're never, they're, I'm never moved like I am with invisibilia. Yeah. I, mean, I often find myself weeping. Yeah. Um, with from the story they tell me because I, I don't feel controlled. Right. No, I think that's, that's right. It's one of the reasons why I like it is that they they seem to be interested in doing podcasts about questions they don't know the answers to. And if they don't know the answers, if they haven't figured out the answers by the end of doing the podcast, they don't fake it. You know, they just say, Yeah, this is we're we're you know, we're we're in a mystery here. We're 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 confused here. We don't know what to think. There was a really powerful one um, that I've been thinking about a lot. And I'm actually maybe writing something about an episode. I think maybe it was the first one of this last season. I'm not sure. But um, it was one about racism and about a guy who had adopted um, a, oh, a child yeah. of color, and but then would catch himself having what he then later decided were kind of racist reactions. And the guy is just devastated. You know, he he just, that's the last thing in the world he wants to be. That's the last thing in the world he wants to do. And he's just so broken up about it. And, uh, and you know, it's, the, the podcast doesn't tell you, now here are the three steps which you can use in order to avoid having racist reactions to things. You know, it just... You just we're complicated and we're messy, and sometimes they're willing to leave it at that, and that's a pretty good thing, I think. So the other night, uh, Seinfeld was on Stephen Colbert, and they were talking about who were their favorite comedians, and Jerry Seinfeld said Bill Cosby was the classic from, and and Colbert said, "Can you appreciate him now, though?" After and Jerry said, "Sure, yeah, I mean, look, we got we dichotomized, we and yeah. and then after the break, it came back, and Jerry Seinfeld said, "You know, uh, you're right. Actually, I don't think I can enjoy it anymore." And then he says, you know what you never see in all these cable news shows? No one ever says, all these shows premise on debate, nobody ever says, hey, you convinced me. I'm wrong. And then to which Colbert says, just like you did and pat yourself <laughs> on the back for it. But, <laughs> but you talk about in the book, um, Leia Labresco, and yeah. who was who a convert, I guess, to Catholicism, right. but didn't grow up in the church. And she was in the Yale, a Yale Debate Society. And you have this great phrase, being broken on the floor. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's an amazing thing, right? And the thing, my, my favorite thing about that, I, uh, when, when I knew I wanted to write about that is when, uh, she says that when you're, when you're running for, uh, a leadership role in the Yale political union, they'll ask you, uh, have you ever broken someone on the floor? Which people love to say yes to, because to break somebody in the floor means to win them over to, to break down their convictions and to win them over to your side right there in the middle of the debate. And have you ever broken someone on the floor? And then, of course, everybody wants to say, yes, yes, I have, because I am so smart and I'm such a terrific debater. And then she says, the next question is, have you ever been broken on the floor? And that's what nobody wants to say yes to. Nobody wants to admit to having lost. But she says, that's a really bad sign. If you say, no, I've never been broken on the floor. That's a bad sign. You know, you came here as a freshman in college and all of your opinions were already correct. There was nothing you had to revise. There was nothing you had to abandon. If that's the case, you know, then we're not sure you're really arguing in good faith here. Because if you were arguing in good faith, there would be a few times when you would have had to say, yeah, I'm wrong. I, you know, but that is... Uh, Samuel Johnson called, he, he said that he had this habit of you know, talking for victory. And I think so many people have that habit of talking for victory. And you see it, man, do you see it on Twitter more than anywhere else, you know, where I just, I just want to, you know, like grab the people by the lapels and say, hey, you know, just say you, you, you were wrong about this one, you know, just say you were wrong about this one and then move on. You don't have to like defend your territory at every single step. For, I mean, it makes you obnoxious, but it's also a terrible way to live. Who wants to live like that? There's an incredible freedom in being able to say, I blew it, got it wrong, sorry, try to do better the next time. Is this, in, in the light of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, is this really Protestants' like real gem for 
in, for intellectual public life. That you're, if you're justified by faith, you don't have to be justified by your ideas or identity, and then you can hold them like a real intellectual. You can actually try on new ideas. It would be nice to think so. <laughs> I mean, I would love to say that that's the case, but I think, you know, Protestants get just as caught up in it as anybody else. I, I, I remember reading a piece a few years ago by... Um, uh, by a, I'll, I'll just say someone from one of the wings of Protestantism and the, 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 uh, the, the piece that the person wrote was, it sort of went like this, you know, here we are Christians in America. We're in a mess. It's a difficult place and time to be a Christian. We're, uh, we're, we're under assault from all sides. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, they're just, you know, a handful of us, Small orth, small o orthodox Christians in the midst of this pagan society, and kind of went on for like that for a while, and then and then he pivots and says, "Now let me tell you why the only really right response to this is my tradition." And I thought, "Dude, is that really the way you want to go here? I mean, can't what would it take <laughs> for us to say if you really do think we're that beleaguered and we're that beaten down?" When do you say, let's join together? Let's see what we can do together. Let's see if we can form uh, a more perfect union <laughs> and, 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 and see what we can do there. But it's like, no, no, at, that, at the end of the day, that instinct kicks in to got to defend my turf. I got to defend my territory. And I think that is just so hard for people to resist because in many ways, what they, they feel is that they're defending you know what they what they really believe they're defending their tribe they're defending their people and 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 that can be a really powerful and a good thing but it can also be something that prevents us from thinking and prevents us from engaging peaceably with others why why don't more christian it's interesting you know most ever, i know a lot of christian colleges i spent i even went to one uh, as an undergraduate uh, it, i can't think of a christian college that sells itself on grace and we've got failures and messes here everything is competency capability character kick ass for christ yeah no, but no, it, it, it almost seems like the, the educational philosophy is always older brother oriented. It's yeah. always, we're putting, we're putting out dutiful sons and daughters who are, ne it's never prodigal oriented. Yeah. Like this is the place where, where we, where we're kind of against the kind of right. uh, rat race, yeah. Her Herculean sort of Promethean self efforts. Thing. Yeah. No, I, I mean, it is true. And again, a lot of this is true. In the specific case of Christian colleges, a lot of it happens because parents want their kids to go to a place where they feel that those kids are protected. And, um, and, and so Christian colleges and universities will try to appeal to that, say, yes, this is a place where your, your, your son or your daughter will be protected. Um, but in, in fact, if it's, a, if it's an academically serious institution and you're really exploring difficult ideas, that's not safe. That's not safe. And, and I, I wish that colleges and universities would be more consistent in that message. Um, they, 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 they too often talk about intellectual risk taking when they're speaking in house, but then when they're speaking to their potential constituency, then they emphasize the, the protection and the safety. And I think, though it's understandable, I get it. I get it. But I think it does run afoul of something that you were just talking about. I, I'll give you an example. This is actually not about a Christian college or university. It's about a church. I had a friend once who had for many years attended um, a, real, a big, uh, uh, well-known conservative evangelical church. And he had actually even been on the staff there for a while. And eventually he got off staff and then he, he left the church altogether. And I, at one point I asked him, you know, you were there for a long time. Why did you leave? And he kind of paused for a minute. And then he said, um, that church is a great church for successful Christians. And, and, and I thought, you know, that's actually, I mean, he said it, he said it in, in a kind way. But in some ways, that's the most damning thing you could say about a church, you know, that it's a church for the people who have it already put together. Um, and, and I think that Christian colleges and universities will do that, too. They'll kind of like, here is, here is the place, here's the place to come to be a successful Christian student or a successful Christian professor. And when that's kind of your self-image and your self-articulation, it becomes really hard to say, you know, I'm as lost, I'm as, I've wandered as far as the prodigal.
You know, it's just, but th- hey, you know, that may be true and that may be powerful, but it's not good for the brand. <laughs> you said it. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, you talk in the book, uh, it's in the section, I think, on attractions, and you tell this really it, 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 powerful story about how when Ta Nahisi Coates wrote this detailed article in the Atlantic about the case for reparations, and you thought that obviously people deserve the, the people descendants of slaves deserve reparations right. but that's different than him making the case for it right. like and and you're not sure that he makes the right kind of case for it and talk about how you were kind of like you were sort of like socially it's game of thrones like shame <laughs> yeah shit like you were kind of shamed by friends yeah. and colleagues yeah yeah because i thought you know i i said i i just felt like there were a lot of questions about reparations that weren't answered um and and you know in the Really, there are three questions I thought that he needed to answer in order to make the case for reparations. And one was, all right, you know, who who gives? Who gives the money? Second, who gets the money? And third, who decides? And and he just didn't get to that level. Uh, but I think that's where all the, the the real action is here, right? I mean, I, like something I would really, really want to know is like, would uh, no, no, like Michelle Obama would clearly be eligible for reparations given that she's African American, but in in the traditional sense in which we think about that. But Barack Obama isn't, right? So you know, he he's it's it's an African, and oh, his parents are an, an African man and a Caucasian woman. So what happened? You know, does he fit? I mean, I just wanted to know things like that. But what happened was that people were the 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 the, the response I got was that if you're not agreeing. That he's that that Coates has made the case for reparations, then you're not being sufficiently supportive of the cause, and you're not you're 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 implicitly saying that that the descendants of slavery don't deserve uh, what he says they should have. You know, my response was, you know, they of course they deserve it. They deserve more than that. They deserve more than they're ever going to get. You know, I mean, they've 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 had such an enormous giant hole dug for them and they've been thrown into that hole and they've been struggling, you know, for centuries to get out. They deserve more than they're ever going to get. But I just have some questions about about how the policy is supposed to work, you know. And and in that case, it was what was going on there was, I think, people wanting and for good reasons to associate themselves or affiliate themselves with this cause. You know, they wanted they wanted to make solidarity. And and solidarity is a great thing, but you know, at the at the end of the day, you have to make policy decisions and those can't be made just on the basis of affirming solidarity. But I really felt like I was, I was like the bad guy, you know, but just for raising questions about the practical matters of it and it just it was a reminder to me how powerful the desire for solidarity can be how good it can be, but how it also creates situations where you have to walk really, really carefully. You have to walk on eggshells in order to try to get to the conversation. And maybe I just wasn't being nearly careful enough. Well, you know, I had a, an experience, a thought experience. Like, I think gerrymandering is one of the biggest yeah. problems in our country now. But I listened to this 538 mm-hmm. podcast. I listened to it twice, the same episode, about gerrymandering. And there's, of course, the, the case that's in front of the court or coming up, I think, of Wisconsin. And I just realized the counter arguments about how to undo it were I was like, wow, that's really complicated because yeah. what about legitimate geographic differences? What right. about how much? What if it's not intentional? What you know? And and just I thought, gosh, this is something that I, I I'm completely for getting rid of, but I I don't know intellect like I, I don't know how to do it. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, and I just think so often, right? Like real, uh, you know, po- public policy or real social, they're not they're idi- they're allergic to ideology, right? Because they're too complicated. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's exactly right, and one of the so, so what you're talking about is the fact that so gerrymandering creates these inequities, um, and if you if you you fix that and you get rid of the current inequities, no matter how you do it, you're going to create some others. You know, and, and that is there are always going to be costs for every benefit. There will be costs, and I think this kind of gets back to what we were saying at the beginning about zealots, right? One of the things that makes a zealot a zealot is that he or she never acknowledges that there can be any costs to the good things that he or she wants to achieve, you know? And 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 I, I feel like that you're just going to make your case better and you're going to win over more people if you admit 
sure there will be costs. Nothing is perfect. Nothing we ever do politically. It's like Kant said, out of the crooked timber of humanity, no straight thing was ever made. And I think that's just that's the most fundamental political reality there is. And what that means is that every good thing that comes, I mean, like, you know, there's, here's an example, absolutely no question that legal rights, full legal rights and, and elimination of discrimination against women, those have been amazingly important, vital, huge, transformative goods in American society. But they have, there have been some costs. The costs are worth paying. I think. I'm sure that the costs are worth paying, but there have been some. And I think it's okay to say that. You know, if you acknowledge that there are some costs, like, for instance, one of the costs is as soon as the real estate uh, industry in America realized that you had, you could have families, you could expect families with two incomes, then all of a sudden, you know, housing costs shoot through the roof. And if you just happen for any reason to be a one income family, how are you going to afford a place to live? It's almost impossible for people to buy a house in that case. But that's because that's one of the that's one of the externalities, as the economists like to say, of of uh, a, a really powerful, legitimate, and necessary change in the political status of women. I, I, I feel like what pe- people never want to acknowledge those things because if they acknowledge that there have been some unanticipated costs, um, then they're afraid that you're going to say, therefore, it's not worth it to do this thing. But pretending that there are no such costs just cuts you off from having a profitable conversation with people who are not 100% convinced. So if you want to preach to the choir all the time, then fine. Don't, you don't ever have to acknowledge that there are any costs. Um, this is one of the things I think, I think this is a real problem with churches, right? I mean, churches, churches rarely want to talk about the price that you have to pay to live as a Christian. If you're really going to do it, it's not going to be all prosperity all the time. There are going to be ways in which you're going to hurt. And churches don't want to do that because, I mean, who wants to come and sit and, you know, tithe in order to hear that? People will rather sit and tithe in order to hear a constant stream of reassurance and cheerleading. But look at the price you pay for not telling the truth. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? Gracious conversations characterized by a particular combination of wit, empathy, reflection, and human understanding. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcasts, projects I've got in the works. Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butcher, Ben DeHart, and Charlotte Donlin. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. Yeah, I had a guy on the podcast a couple months ago, Tom Nichols, wrote a book called The Death of Expertise. Yeah. He said, he said, you know, in 2008, both Barack Obama and John McCain looked at the Rust Belt factories and says, said those jobs are gone and they're not coming back. Yeah. And he said they had different solutions for what to do in light of that. But they didn't. They treated the Americans uh, voter like an adult. Like and they, yeah. he said, now that's, you know, oh, we're going to get all the jobs back from China or we're going to, you know, like people will just tell us. And so, is it chicken or the egg? Right? Is it? Right. Is it? Did, are the are, are the politicians? Are, are we to blame because we want to be lied to? Like, yeah. We kind of want the sure. in-house tribal stories. Like we we want that, right? Sure. Everybody wants that, right? I mean, and here's the thing: you can get all the jobs back from China if you want to, and I mean, it can happen. 
what that will mean is that given the cost of employment in the U.S., that all of these things that we can now afford easily, we will not be able to afford anymore. How much do you think my iPhone would cost if the entire thing were built in the United States, right? I mean, uh, it, it would, it would cost, I don't know, maybe what, $2,500 probably, something like that. I mean, it would be, it would be crazy. And then we would complain bitterly about that. But, you know. Wherever it was built, it would start to slow down once the new model came out. <laughs> yeah, that exactly. is for sure. <laughs> that much we know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think I think Nietzsche said somewhere that I I think maybe T. S. Eliot was quoting paraphrasing or something but that you know some pre-Socratic somewhere comes up with like the mind body problem and now it's a problem it's not just there's a duality it's a problem yeah and now we can't get through a week of intellectual life without thinking about the mind body problem but it's not why is it a problem you you have this great section of the book where you talk about myths and how metaphors become myths and yeah I mean one of the examples you use is of the brain is like a computer. Right. And then it just becomes the brain is a computer. Yeah. And you and all of a sudden the the, the metaphor just becomes a myth and you have no more now it, it now it drives it, it drives the train. No, that's exactly right. It happens all the time. And one of the things that's really interesting is that whatever the new technology is at any given time, that's what we think human beings are like, you know. And we so uh, in, in around the turn of the 19th century people would, would actually quite often compare the human brain to a steam engine because a steam engine was like the new, <laughs> the hot new technology at the time, right? So it's, it's kind of weird. We make these things and then we reduce ourselves to the things that we have made, um, which is, you know, in my judgment, that's just idolatry is what that is. You know, you are, you are coming to define yourself in terms of or and to worship something that you've made yourself. You you talk about. Do you know uh, Harry Frankfurt's book on bullshit? Yeah. And one of the things I, I, that first sentence of that book is like the best opening sentence of ever every book I've ever. The most salient feature of our culture is that there is so much bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> but he talk he talks about how the re, well, how like the person who's who's bullshitting is different than the liar. Right. Because the liar has to know the truth. To deceive, so right. but the person that's BSing is just kind of talking to. The, and he says the part of this why it's so prevalent in our culture is because everybody feels like they have to have an opinion on everything and right. express it. Right. And right. You, and there's more and more knowledge, more and more fact. More and so, yeah. and you kind of talk about in the book that one of the things to one of the ways that you can learn how to think is to resist that temptation. Yeah, right? that's right. Though, I mean, it's hard to do unless you have some, some, some help with it. But I've been thinking a lot lately about this really wonderful essay by Wendell Berry, um, the poet and farmer, and it's called Standing by Words. And, and I, I love this idea of words you can stand by, you know, words that, that you're accountable for. And, and it's like, what would, what would your life be like if the only words you uttered were the ones that you really were willing to stand by? And I think that, uh, that that is, uh, look, first, the easiest way to see the problem of uttering words that we can't stand by, which is another way to say, just, you know, spouting bullshit is in the political world, right? I mean, that's where people, People say things, our politicians say things all the time, and we know, we know that they can't back up what they're saying, and they'll, you know, would squirm their way out of any attempt to hold them accountable for it. We just, we're used to that. We don't even expect political speech to be accountable in that way. But it's also something that's really hard to, to achieve in day-to-day -day life. And I think it's, uh, this is you know, one of my big complaints with social media is the ways in which social media, it's what one scholar calls the online disinhibition effect, where, and it seems to happen, as I say in the book, whenever we have a new technology, whenever we have a new technology, and this happened in the time of print, we, 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 we don't feel as accountable to what we're saying in that, through that technology. And what that does is that that leads to bullshit. It also leads to abusiveness, right? I mean, it leads to all kinds of abuses of language. And it would just be an, an incredibly wonderful discipline if people would, would just ask themselves before they say something <laughs> online or in person, for that matter, is this something I can stand by? Is this something I can be accountable to? Um, but that's a big ask. You go, I'm assuming you go to like academic conferences for people in your discipline, like yeah. in English literature. Do you, how do you interact there? Are, are you self, 
are you conscious of Christian identity distinctly there? And because you write mm-hmm. pr- pretty particularly as a Christian, mm-hmm. are, are, are you, are, I don't know, do they stop telling certain jokes when you come <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm assuming, I'm assuming you've got friends yeah. in the discipline outside of a Christian higher institu- educational institutions yeah. that you enjoy spending time with. What are the, what are those conversations like with those kinds of friends? You know, one of the things I say in the book is, uh, is that uh, it was something I've learned over the years through having to deal with these multiple communities is that sometimes it's more important to be like-hearted than it is to be like-minded. Um, and I know that sounds like kind of an Owen Wilson line, you know, or something, but, 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 um, but I, I really mean that like there is a kind of, uh, a sort of a generosity of spirit and, and a willingness to listen and a willingness to, to learn that, um, uh, when, when I find that, I can have conversations with people that are open and productive and meaningful. And when I don't find it, you know, those conversations don't happen. There is just, you know, there is, there are always people, you know, who are drawing those lines in the sand that we've talked about. You know, do you line up with these 20 points? You know, and if you do, then great, you're one of me. And if you don't, then you're the alien, you're the other. And uh, what I find is that I, I mean, there's some, so there, you know, I go to an academic conference, there are some people who are just completely contemptuously dismissive of me because I'm a Christian. There are far more people who are just befuddled, like they, it's like meeting a Zoroastrian or something, you know, I mean, they just don't have any context for knowing how to deal with a Christian. Um, and then I, and then there are other people who are like, hmm, that's interesting. Uh, you know, that, I mean, they, they, it's puzzling to me, but I want to know more. Now, I tend to have bigger problems when I go to conferences or meetings with my fellow Christians because I think in part because Christians feel so beleaguered right now, feel so culturally behind the eight ball, that they draw harder lines in the sand than almost anybody. So, like, you know, there right now, you know, I know a lot of people who won't have anything to do with me because I wouldn't sign the that Nashville statement on sexuality that some conservative evangelicals put out recently. But I know that there are other people that if I did sign it, wouldn't have anything to do with me. So um, I, I tend to find that kind of exclusionary, you're with me or you're against me way of thinking. I, I see it more among my fellow Christians right now than I do among my fellow academics. Hmm. I like that word contemptuously uh, uh, dismiss, like as opposed to just dismiss. Yeah. I dismiss him with contempt. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, like I want to make sure that you know how much I despise you before I walk away. <laughs> how much of the of the sense of beleagueredness of Christians do you think is is real and, you know, and, and, and part of the zeitgeist? And how much do you think is sort of like, you know, we all have victim mentality kind of thing. Yeah. Like, I mean, how much of it is in the mind, do you think, yeah. of, of – of Christians and how much do you think is actually there? It's like chicken or egg. I mean, how does? Yeah, it's hard. It's 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 really hard to tell. You know, the thing about it is, is that people are selling both sides. People sell. We're being discriminated against. We are being persecuted. You know, I mean that 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 a lot of people will buy that. And then there are the people who are like, well, there are no problems. What's the, you know, everything is fine here. You know, like the dog with his coffee sitting in the burning day. This is fine. No problem. And, um, and you have audiences for both sides. And I think it, it makes it really hard to tell. I mean, I don't, it does seem to me that there are, there are legal moves that make it harder for Christians to sort of live openly as Christians and to express themselves as fully as they once did. I'm just not sure that's altogether a bad thing. Um, I mean, I, I, I think maybe well, one of the things that's going to happen as a result of all, all of these movements, if they continue, is it's going to make a, a, make it costly to be a Christian. And when that happens, there's this whole giant edifice of purely cultural Christianity that is going to collapse. And, you know, my, my attitude towards that is kind of good riddance. You know, I'm just not sure that that's done us any good over the years. Being a kind of a protected class, I think, never does Christians any good. So, um, you know, I, I don't I don't look forward to persecution, but I think we're a long, long way from persecution. Um, and I just think it's time to focus on uh, forming Christians in a more serious way. 
so that whatever comes, people will be prepared for it and will be ready to to deal with it. You tell this really powerful personal story in the book where you're actually somebody was you're you're talking about how issues around sexuality and sexual expression have sort of torn apart the Anglican community, which you're a part. And you're talking about somebody that who was basically saying that Rowan Williams was a heretic because of his views on sexuality, some of which you, you may have not been sympathetic to, but you were, but you, but you think he's a great theologian and he's, yeah. how could you say he's not orthodox? And you said you stopped writing yeah. and you said you stopped writing this response on this blog. You stopped not to take a breath, not to think, not to reflect, but because your hands were shaking so much because you were so angry yeah. that you couldn't type yeah. He's accurate anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and it wasn't just that the person wasn't just saying that Rowan was a heretic, but saying he's not a Christian. He's not a Christian at all. He's an unbeliever. He's a wolf in sheep's clothing. And this, I, I mean, I, you know, I think there's lots of lots of evidence that that isn't true. But, you know, I was, uh, you know, I, at that point, what I wanted to do was to eviscerate that guy. You know, I wanted just to verbally tear him limb from limb. That's really what I wanted to do. And my, my, I was so angry. My hands were shaking. I couldn't type. And, and, and later on, I thought, thank you, Lord. <laughs> thank you for me, giving me that physical reaction to keep me from typing something that I'm sure I would have regretted later on. Because what I would have said about that guy would have been at least as bad as what he said about Rowan. And, um, and I just realized at that point, I got to get out of here. I can't, you know, this is not an environment in which I am able to bring light. I can bring heat to a place where there's already a lot of heat, but I'm not able to bring light. And the thing about it is, is that maybe a, a wiser and more mature Christian would have been able to do something that I couldn't do there. Um, so it wasn't any virtue in my part. It was more a weakness on my part. But at that point, I thought, I better get, I better step back from all this and kind of take care of myself and, and deal with some of this anger and pray for deliverance from some of this anger before I do yet another thing that I really regret. I mean, I've got like a list a mile long of things that I regret. I don't want to add to that list. Are you drawn to controversy by disposition? I mean, are, are you that kind of personality that doesn't mind mixing it up? Are you conflict averse temperamentally? Um, I, I have really changed in that regard. Um, I used to be much more confrontational. That used to be my 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 thing. Um, is that I wanted to talk for victory, and I was proud of my uh, dialectical abilities and my quickness of wit and all that other bullshit. And I, uh, I, I that's that's you know, I, and I thought that was kind of my thing, you know, and. Um, and that has changed over the years, and I'm really, really grateful not to be that way anymore, though I know that you can go too far the other way. Um, I know that that's the case. Um, that is, you can refuse to stand up for something you really believe in because you want to be liked. And that's the big danger for being sort of where I am, where I'm positioning this book and where I'm positioning myself right now is I want to be kind of the calm and the moderating voice, the mediating voice. And that's just, that's my calling, I think, is to be a mediator. But one of the things when you are in that mediating environment is that you can end up softening the edges of all of your beliefs. And you can also end up being two-faced. You can end up making one person think that you really agree with him and then talk to somebody else and make her think you really agree with her. And, you know, there's there's a kind of a, a spiritual battle for me to fight there so that I can always be honest, even when I am trying to be a mediator. But I definitely took a, a pretty strong turn away from it. And I can tell you when it happened. It happened when I almost got in a fight with a guy in the basketball court. Uh, <laughs> I was playing basketball at Wheaton College and, uh, you know, uh, uh, like a lunchtime basketball thing. And I almost got in a fight with a guy. And I was, that was when I realized I had an anger issue that I needed to deal with. And I, I was, um, uh, I was actually going to quit basketball. And I told, I told the students in my classes the next day how badly I had behaved and that I was going to quit basketball. And one of the, how did they, how did they react? Well, yeah, what did they, they say? were like, wow. Well, most of them were, were like, wow, that's, that's, you know, look at you, man. That's really good. You're, you're giving up, 
you know, something that you care about because, you know, you're, you're behaving so bad. That's honorable and that's good. But one guy didn't think so. And it was interesting. The one guy who didn't think so was a, well, what Wheaton called the Colson scholars. He was a guy who had been converted to Christianity while he was in prison as a result of Chuck Colson's prison fellowship ministry. And he had come to Wheaton on a scholarship. And the whole time I was saying that, I was actually feeling pretty good about myself because I was making this open confession of how bad I had been and how I was going to deal with it. He was like shaking his head, like, no, 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 no. And he came up to me after classes. He said, can I talk to you? And I said, sure. So he came to my office and he said, he said, you need to go out and play. When he said, when is the next time they have those basketball games? Um, and I said, well, they would play tomorrow. And he said, you need to be there tomorrow. And I said, no, I, I mean, with the way I acted, no way. And he said, he said, Dr. Jacobs, don't ever give up ground to the evil one. You need to make sure that you go. You just, but you don't ever go out and play basketball again without praying first. <laughs> you pray that God will, 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 will calm your spirit. And that, that was, and so I did. I thought, you know, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I'm kind of giving up ground. Why would I do that? And, uh, uh, and so, you know, he, he, he was bold enough to come in and tell me that I was completely wrong. And that was a, a real turning point for me in my life. And I think it was from that point on that I, uh, that, that I started seeing a calling to being more peaceable and more of a mediator. So thanks, Manny Mill. Manny Mill is the guy who did it. Hmm. So. Where do you think the anger came from? Do you think it was something like from childhood? Do you think it was just per, like, do you, was there something yeah. like, how did you wrestle with that? Like, what did you, did you unearth, do some excavating of what? what this yeah, like? I don't, you know, I'm not really, I didn't actually that much. I mean, my father was a, a really, really hot tempered man. And uh, um, most of my childhood, he was in prison. And I was actually glad when he was in prison because he was scary guy to be around. Um, and, you know, instead of saying, I'm never going to be like him, I think I ended up being too much like him. Um, but I, I, if you, I, I didn't really want to, to, to do, first of all, I'm, I'm not a very introspective person. I just wanted to fix the problem. But I think, but I think insofar as I, uh, I do know what it's all about, I really think it's wanting to get my way, you know, wanting, wanting things to go my way, wanting to be able to dictate the terms. And so, you know, that began a sort of a long process of trying to learn to live in a world where I can't dictate the terms and to try to be generous and charitable towards people whom I really strongly disagree with. And that, that I never really thought about writing about any of this, but when I saw the way that the country was tearing itself apart during the last presidential campaign, that's when I had to sit down and write the book. Yeah. That is, I, I, you're incredibly vulnerable. Thanks for yeah. being that uh, honest. I, I mean, that having a parent in prison, I mean, that, well, it's actually something that lots of people in our culture yeah. know in certain sections yeah. of the culture. But, but my, my guess is there are not a lot of professional academics, public intellectual that, that, to tell that no. story or hear, or hear, or have that story. No, it is, it is pretty unusual in that regard. I've always, kind of struggled about how much of the story to tell. I mean, I've written about it briefly, but I, I, I haven't said too much about it because, and not because I'm ashamed of it or, you know, or trying to hide it or anything, but more because it's not something I want to make kind of capital out of, you know, it's sort of like that, you know, the, the, you know, the crusty old dude who says, you know, I walked to school 10 miles in the snow uphill both ways, you know, I, I, how, how hard it is for me, how miserable I've had it. I just, you know, I just don't feel like playing that card. Have, what's something that you've been wrong about, like recently, of the last few years or something, what's the most significant thing you've changed your mind on? Um, what is the most significant thing I've changed? Well, I, I think that, um, uh, you know, about 15 years ago, um, I had been an uh, I had been an Episcopalian for about twenty years at that point, and then everything started to go to hell in the handcart in the Episcopal Church, and things were really difficult at the parish that I was attending. And I I left that uh, left that church, and I and I said to myself, you know, I'm done with the Episcopal Church. There's just no way I'm coming back to that, and um, really felt that I had kind of closed that book and been done with it. Um, and, and then like a couple of years ago, George Sumner, who is the bishop of the Diocese of Dallas in the Episcopal Church, asked me to come and do a clergy retreat there, lead a clergy retreat. And um, along with 
Fleming Rutledge, the great Fleming Rutledge. And um, so we, I, I came and I did that. And I just made a point when I was there of going around and sitting and talking to all these people who were, you know, rectors or of, of little churches in the Episcopal Church and somewhere in the Diocese of Dallas and um, just trying to get to know them and figuring out what their life and their ministry was like. And and I was just like blown away by how, first of all, how you know faithful these people were, but also just how they had to really keep their head down and try to do their work and to ignore all the politics of the of the national denomination and they were you know they were just good faithful people who were trying to do their best to serve God in difficult times and in a difficult place and I thought wow I mean, I, I didn't. I, I, I for for ten years I've been judging these people really. I mean, not openly and consciously, but on some level, I think I was thinking, if you're still in the Episcopal Church, you know, you you you're, there's got to be something wrong. And I, I was really convicted by that. This sense that um, mm. that I had let a kind of a judgment form within me without even being aware of it. Um, and, you know, so now my wife and, and uh, son and I are going to an Episcopal church here in, 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 uh, in Waco. I, I never thought that would happen again. But that, that leading that clergy retreat was a real wake-up call for me. Hmm. That's, that's, that's really powerful. Have you ever read Thomas Halik? You know, I've got that. What, what's the book? Uh, forgotten. Um, he, he's got one that, uh, that Matt Milliner, our mutual friend, recommended to me. Um, and I started it, but I haven't read it is yet. It, is it Patience with no, God? Or, uh, or On the God of yeah. Love, probably? I can't I remember now. Yeah, I don't or think it's of, those, but yeah. In his, um, in his most recent book, I, I, this, your book made me think about this quote. Because you talk a lot about solidarity and how when we see ourselves in, in, in solidarity right. in the best sense, that we're, we're less controlling right. intellectually. We're willing to exercise yeah. forbearance. He says this, and he writes a lot about Nietzsche. He says, God is dead. That sentence uttered at the end of the 19th century continued to fascinate for the next hundred years. Maybe it was not only a sentence about God and against God, but also one containing something of God's message to us. A God who has not endured death is not truly living. A faith that does not undergo Good Friday cannot attain the fullness of Easter. Crises of faith, both personal and in the histories of culture, are an important part of the history of faith, of our communication with God, who is concealed and returns again to those who do not stop waiting for the unique and eternal work to speak to them yeah. once more. Yeah. And that that business of waiting, um, you know, waiting is uh, it now seems to me to be almost everything. You know, I mean, e- even to uh, you know, the, the the single most practical comment I make or recommendation I make in the whole book is the one that I got from Jason Fried, the software designer. Give it five minutes. You know, <laughs> just yeah, just that's a great just, story. You give tell. it five minutes. Yeah. You know, like yeah. yeah. And um, but the thing about it is waiting for God. Unfortunately, five minutes isn't enough. (laughs) It's got to be sort of a lifetime of waiting. But I I think that everything in our culture and everything in our framework militates against patience. And I think there's just not anything that it's more important for me personally to pray for than patience. Um, I mean, I fail in that daily. Um, I, I actually feel like one of the reasons God sent me to Waco, Texas, was to learn patience in traffic because people in Waco drive like 12 miles an hour everywhere that they're going, you know. And I'm, you know, I spent 29 years in Chicagoland where, you know, people are driving 80 miles an hour, six inches from each other's bumpers, you know. It's, and, and, you know, in little ways and big ways. Uh, I am in desperate need of patience, and um, and I think uh, that waiting on God, waiting on the Lord, is the most important kind of patience of all. Yeah, and that I mean that what Haley talks about there that that not sort of catastrophizing right. these crises of it, both personal and these cultural yeah. crises for faith. I think because I mean that your book that th- that seems to resonate throughout your book that that sort of not catastrophizing. Right. Not ju- rushing to judgment, um, it, actually letting things right. play out right. a bit is part of what it means to, to live the good life. You know, I, I was um, – the other day I saw on Twitter um, where some people were talking about conflicts in the church right now and whether there's any possibility for reconciliation and healing. And, um, and, and somebody was saying – 
you know, we, I, I just don't see the point in even having a dialogue if we don't have an end game, if we don't have an agreed upon set of structures and authorities, you know, why, why, why even bother if we don't know where we're headed? And, and, and Ross, my, my friend Ross Douthat said something, he said, that, that I've really been thinking about. He said, I don't know. He said, I think maybe just kind of staying in conversation with one another without having an end game was sort of how the church survived the fourth century. <laughs> and I thought, mm. you know, yeah. that's like a really profound yeah. statement, I think. You know, that's how they got through the Arian controversy. That's how they got through the Donatist controversy is just just kind of hanging in there, you know, and and uh, uh, without an end game, without a clear sense of how this is going to resolve itself. And I, I just, I, I've been thinking about that ever since and think that might be, might be the answer is we don't know where this is headed, but we're going to wait and see. Yeah. And while we're waiting, a great mm-hmm. thing you can do as if you're listening and you're waiting is to get how to think. You can pass the time that way. It's a great book. Alan, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed the book and I, I, I could talk with you all day. You're a great conversationalist. Well, thanks, Scott. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks so much. I'll have you back on. Good. Let's do it. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Alan for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, How to Think, A Survival Guide for a World at Odds. It's great. And thanks again to you for listening to the show. Until next time. Fare thee well.